Isaac Heron is a Rhodes Scholar with a fistful of prizes and awards already and at the age of 23, a very successful young man all round. This is not how it could have been. He spent much of his early life in a series of foster homes. So, as well as his academic achievements, Isaac Heron is working for improvements in the foster care system. He's a founder member of the Voice Whakaronomai, the advocacy organisation for the around 6,000 children with care experience. And he's with me now. Kia ora, Isaac. Kia ora. Congratulations. Thank you. When are you off to Oxford? Uh, September next year. So in the meantime, you'll be finishing off your law degree. I've just finished it, actually. Oh. I just had my last exam last week. So you got your BSc in Economics and Genetics. Yeah. You got your law degree. Yes. Anything else I should know about? <laughs> uh, no, that's the two of them. Good grief. Tell me about your experience in foster care, please. Yeah, so I was first in contact with the foster care system from when I was six months old, although I still mostly stayed with my biological family until I was six. Uh, I just had a, a on and off short placements with various families. I'm not actually sure how many. And then when I was six years old, I was placed in foster care more permanently with uh, some family friends who lived nearby. And then when I was eight, after that didn't work out in the end, I was placed in a final foster family who I still live with now and consider to, to, to be essentially my family and I'm fully part of their family and I still see them every summer between university breaks and things like that. I suppose the thing about foster care homes is that sometimes they won't work out for no reason except incompatibility. I think there are quite a lot of different reasons why they don't work out. I think it's a very complex thing to have to deal with as a foster parent because you have to not only deal with a child who's have had some difficulties in terms of their own experiences, but also dealing with the care system as a whole and with the relationships that they need to maintain with their biological family. So I think for a lot of people, it's also just very difficult regardless of the, the child that ends up with them. But I think in some cases, it may be incompatibility as well. But you maintained links with your biological mother yes. for all your life. Yes, I did. And actually, since I left high school to start university, the two of us have come quite a bit closer as well. I started seeing her a lot more again, which has been lovely. Right. That matters to you, and I imagine it matters to most people. Is that easily facilitated if both sides are willing? I think it definitely matters to everyone and they, they would want it. I can't speak for what everyone else experiences, I suppose. I think most people try to maintain some contact with their biological parents and sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't for whatever reason. I think also, unfortunately, sometimes some also don't really end up with a close family out of their foster care experience and then their biological family is all they have. So yeah. you can end up with quite a wide variety of outcomes. What sort of child were you? Uh... Interesting question. I think that there was a while that I was, I think, very uncertain and often afraid of lots of different things. And that was kind of, I guess, responding to the uncertainty that I'd had in my life until I was eight. But I think over time, I became a lot more confident and that kind of continued to develop over the course of my teenage years. So I don't think that there's one answer to that for my whole childhood, I suppose. No. And it's possible 
that that sort of experience would have increased your using that word resilience? Uh, people do say that. I think that to some extent, actually having a really unstable experience to start with can decrease your resilience in some yeah. sense. I mean, I learn... thought so. I didn't mean for yeah. a moment to sound patronising, <laughs> you know. <laughs> yeah, um, I, I guess what I mean is that you end up learning how to deal with some very difficult situations, but it's not something that you should have to deal with that at, at that age. And I think often if you have that kind of dependency for quite a long time, on a close family, and then you can develop your confidence off that stable base and have that network to rely on later, you can actually end up being more resilient, even if you couldn't deal with the extremely difficult kinds of situations lots of people in foster care have had to deal with. Yeah. You, I mean, what a child needs, it seems to me, if you want to boil it down, is is unconditional love from at least one person. And because you maintained links with your biological mother, maybe you had that. People who don't or don't see their biological parents, or whose biological parents don't evidence unconditional love for whatever reason, you know, that must be a big hole in their lives, right? Can you relate to that? Yes, I think that's definitely true. I would like to think that at least some people in foster care do get that from their foster parents or even from some unconditional other Unconditional kind of love, yes, if, yes. They're, if they're extraordinary people. Yes, and I think some of them are, and sometimes that doesn't end up that way. And if you, I do know some people who would probably say they wouldn't have that, and I think it is a big hole in their lives, and I do definitely sympathise with that experience, although I've been very lucky to avoid that both in terms of my biological and my foster family. What sort of changes do you think could be made to the foster system to improve it? I think there's quite a lot of discussion about this, and... Something I have worked on with Voice Whakarongo Mai, the organisation you mentioned at the start of the interview, is the Six Promises campaign, which is a petition to Parliament about six different fairly basic promises we think should be made by the government to people in foster care, which could be fleshed out once politicians have committed to them. And I believe we got all of the different parties, or all of the major ones involved this year to actually commit to that prior to the election. And some examples of that, I think, were relatively simple things that I think should be uncontroversial. So one of them would be that a lot of people in foster care have difficulty accessing health care in a timely way or having disability or other kinds of diagnoses quite late because it kind of falls through the cracks of all of the rest of the things that are going on in their lives or they lack proper mental you mean health support. You mean continuity? Because Something. of the discontinuity. Yeah, yeah. They often don't get these things as early in life as most person would people would have. Yeah. And then similarly with education, which is something that I'm particularly passionate about, I think that there should be more emphasis on helping them also through that discontinuity during primary school and high school, but also building aspirations to do more than that as well and go to tertiary education as a potential option as well, which is often not even considered to be within the realm of possibilities for many of them because there's often just such low expectations and there's not uh, as much support as I think there should be in terms of scholarships and things like that. Continuity is hard enough at the best of times, you know, who can find their birth certificate at the drop of a hat and who knows whether they had that vaccination if they can't find the form and they've changed doctors and so on and so forth. How can it be improved in this case with young people in foster care? Well, I think the continuity that you are missing in that case is from at least having a single family the entire time, right? So in theory, the state has taken on that role and that should be something that they prioritise in the same way regardless of who your social worker is or who your 
caregiver is at that time. Mm. But I think that often things get left with individual people at the moment and then in the massive cycle of people that often someone in care will go through, that's why it can slip through the cracks. So having a more conscious policy and dedicated funding for things like that as something that's really important I think would be the main thing although I don't know all of the details about how those things work now so I don't want to say that too confidently. Right as you say education was obviously a priority for you was made a priority for you by someone or how did it come about that you're obviously very clever but also very dedicated to learning? Yes, I think that partly it came from myself. I really enjoy learning and... Did that take the place of perhaps stability that wasn't fully there for you? I think probably not, I would say. I actually don't think I started to do as well academically until I was in a more stable situation. So I think it's more that it was something that I had a kind of natural inclination towards, but I still needed a family that was interested in supporting me with that interest and also had an environment where I could kind of pursue that and it was just assumed that I would go into higher education or something like that. Whereas I think the difference for people who are in other foster families or don't get given that same kind of assumed ability to do that, just assume that they can't, and that kind of stops them from having that interest in the first place. So I think it was the combination of the environment and my own interests. It's interesting that you've taken on this role of of seeking improvements of the foster care system because, as you're the first to say, you were relatively lucky under the circumstances. Many other people haven't been so lucky, and yet you've taken on that advocacy role. Have you met, have you met people that that need help? Yes, I would say that I have. I obviously wouldn't want to go into too many details, but uh, yes, yes, and it has motivated me a lot to help them because I didn't quite realise how a lot of the care system worked, even though I was in it, because there's just such a wide range of experiences and other systems that I just never contacted. Yeah, yeah. Well, you only know your own little bit of it, right? Yeah. Um, One of the other promises is to support young people in care to develop their identity, know their whakapapa and grow their sense of self. Do you have any ideas of how that could be done better? Yeah, that's probably the toughest one for me to talk about off the top of my head. Uh, I think that part of it is about the relationship you have with your biological family but also with the history that comes with that. So if you are Māori or Pacifica, for example, having the opportunity to be in contact with your, uh, if you're Māori, hapu or iwi, and the history that is related to that and the wider family that is related to that. I think the promise also includes things like if you are transgender or LGBT, again, that's not necessarily something that at the moment I think is prioritised as something to to think about as they're growing up and whether they might want to get in contact with certain communities because, again, you're constantly changing foster families and it just never becomes a priority if you're always in emergency mode. I think that there are probably lots of other things other people would be able to suggest as well, but that's what I can think of at the yeah, moment. Yeah, yeah. You're also a member of Ropu consulting to the Ministerial Advisory Board, holding Oranga Tamariki to account. This was obviously pre-election. Is that an an ongoing conversation, as it were? 
Yes, so Oranga Tamariki is going through quite a wide range of reforms for the last, and has been for the last couple of years. There are, I think, two degrees of separation between the group I was in and the reforms that are happening. So I'm not sure that I actually have, especially at the moment, the greatest insight into it. But at least as it was originally conceived, a lot of it was about having this external group that would say, Oranga Tamariki, you need to do this, this and this and all of your different uh, aspects, including uh, a lot of decentralisation and letting the community become more involved in taking care of our rangatahi. And we were meant to help that advisory board to do that same thing. I think actually, unfortunately, some of that contact has dropped off a little bit more recently, but we were able to give input into bits and pieces like trying to improve family group conferences, which I think were a great idea as initially suggested, but haven't really worked out in the way that they were intended. I wonder if you'll find any parallels in the UK when you get there later next year with their foster system. Yes, so that's interesting you say that actually because a lot of what Voice Whakarunga Mai was inspired by was an organisation called Who Cares Scotland, which I think has existed for a little while before then. What is what, it called? Who Cares Scotland, right. with a question mark after the cares. Uh, so it's, I guess, quite similar to Voice Whakarunga Mai, but it, it came earlier and was the, I, I don't know if it was the first time it was done, but again, it's about being an independent advocacy service for people in foster care to make sure that their voices and perspectives are heard in the system since they're often lost in their views on their own situations and on what policies are a good idea are often not heard as well. So I think that the UK, because of Who Cares Scotland and some other reforms that have kind of gone along with that, are a little bit ahead of us. And that's actually, for example, a lot of the inspiration for a lot of the work I'm doing trying to improve our tertiary education system is that there's much more dedicated support for care leavers going into tertiary education in the UK than there is here. Meanwhile, on your own education front, you're going to be studying what at Oxford? Yes, so my plan at the moment is to study a Master's in Economics, which would be obviously continuing the bachelor's that I had in economics as one of my three majors during my undergraduate. You did economics and genetics? Yes. That's an interesting combo. Yes, and at the time I don't think it was necessarily to try and make it a super coherent combination I suppose I just liked economics and genetics at high school and wanted to pursue them more and then had been told I might like law so I gave it a try and enjoyed that as well but since then I've enjoyed more and more all three of them as I've gone and it's made me more interested in seeing if I can combine it in some way in areas like science and technology policy for example which I think all of them are useful for but postgraduate study in economics will probably increase my skill set the most. So you're interested in in the 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 the, tech, the the social and cultural aspects of technology? Yeah, so how I suppose we should regulate it to avoid any of the harms that could result from them. Yeah, this is AI, this is the whole gamut of things we're worried about at the moment, is it? Yes, and uh, another one that's maybe not discussed so much would be synthetic biology as well, which is what I did my law honours dissertation on, which is about the increasing ability to create new viruses and bacteria and other organisms from scratch and create DNA from scratch, which creates risks in terms of organisations that send those out to often very legitimate research companies, but which also 
could theoretically, if they don't screen their orders, be used to send it to a potential bioterrorist if you had a smallpox sequence or something like that. Brave new world. How long are you in Oxford for? I'm there for two years. And are you fully funded for living and education? Yes. With the Rhodes Scholarship? Yes, that's right. That's great, isn't it? Yeah. Yes, I'm very excited. Yeah. And what are you doing between now and then, then? I am working at the job that I was originally uh, going to be at before I got the scholarship, because obviously I'm still not leaving until September. So I that's at the Reserve Bank, which is has a graduate program that you can rotate through for three years in three different teams and my first rotation is in the financial stability policy team cool any chance to get any interest rates down (laughs) did you work on that uh i did work in the team that uh is in the economics department but i obviously don't have any involvement in the decisions (laughs) very nice to talk to you best of luck with everything you do Thank you very much. Isaac Heron, who's a Rhodes Scholar, among other things, goes to Oxford next September.